Lord, we are so thankful for the foundation you have provided for us in your word. We're so thankful for the refuge that you yourself are to those who hope in you. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the relief you've given us from guilt, the rescue you have provided from judgment through his death and resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life. That no matter what happens here, we are destined to spend eternity with our Savior, face to face, beholding his glory, delighting in him. I pray that today as we consider your will for us here in this world, that you would energize and strengthen us by your grace, that your spirit would direct us into your will, and that we would be receptive and obedient to all that you would say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is going to be a departure from the Gospel of Luke. I'm actually going to be uh, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, although we'll be in a number of passages today. You can turn there if you like. Uh, it is no secret to us that Jesus has not yet come back. Um, we're still here. He is still in heaven. The kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. And so that means the world is still under curse. And we are still here longing for a new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. We're longing for a day when there will be no more sin, where there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more death. Uh, over the last number of weeks, there's been a number of people in our church affected by death. It was only a few weeks ago that um, Rhonda Cook's father passed away. Uh, it was not long after that that Dan Rudman's mother died. Derek Revis, his grandfather, just passed away last weekend. And if we go back even a few more weeks, we can start adding, that, adding names to that list. Uh, Al's mother passing away. We, we could, all of us have been affected by that at some point, And many in our congregation have been affected by death very recently. As you all know, Jim Gallagher passed away suddenly early this week. He left behind a wife, Nicole, two children who need long-term care, Tom and Shreya, and that leaves a big hole. Um, that results in some pretty significant needs for their family. And as, as Al mentioned, uh, we had a wonderful memorial service yesterday, and, and the family is responding with incredible grace and poise, resiliency. And I have to say, I've been very encouraged by so many of you, so many in our church who have stepped up to the plate to serve and support them during this time. So thank you to those who have provided meals, those who helped with the event for the family yesterday with setup and cleanup and all the different things that were, all the different moving parts so that the Gallagher family, the, the Larios family and others who were there, they could just be there to experience it. And I also wanna say thank you to many of you who have prayed because God is answering those prayers. So even if you weren't here yesterday, I know many of you have, have been involved in this situation. Um, and it was a great time yesterday, not just because we got to remember Jim's life, but there were many unbelievers who got to hear the good news of the gospel. They heard it multiple times from multiple people, and we can praise God and rejoice in that. But as you all probably know, this won't be the last time that we have an opportunity as a church to serve um, the Gallagher family. That's gonna be a long-term change and a challenge for them. And it won't be the last time that we as a church uh, experience loss within our own congregation. It won't be the last time that we are going to need each other to face times of suffering. So what I want to do today is just consider together as a church family, what is our role uh, in times like this? How does God desire to use us to minister 
to one another? What does it look like to be a church that responds rightly, that engages faithfully in times of loss? Well, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter one says this in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In times of affliction, in times of sorrow, loss, grief, of whatever form, God desires to give comfort to his children. He is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. And sometimes God does this directly. He is the God of comfort. His spirit is referred to in the New Testament as the comforter. And so sometimes God provides this comfort to individuals not through any other uh, earthly means. He simply directly ministers to the hearts of those that he loves. What an amazing gift to know that the maker of the universe would draw near to us to pour out his grace, to bind up our wounds by directly ministering to us through his presence. God does that. He's dependent on no one. He doesn't need any help in sustaining his children. He is the God of comfort who comforts us. But sometimes God wants to work through secondary means. Sometimes God chooses to use us as channels through which he provides that comfort So he is the God of all comfort who, verse four, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When we experience God's grace, when we experience God's direct personal ministry to us, we then have the opportunity, and I would say more than that, the responsibility to extend that comfort to others. Being part of the church means a lot more than attending on Sunday. Singing some songs, listening to a sermon, maybe giving financially, maybe you're even part of the machinery of Sunday. You unlock doors or work in the nursery or play music or teach a Sunday school class. There's a lot of things that happen on Sunday, which is wonderful. But being part of the church involves a relational component. We are members of the body of Christ together. And I think what is clear in 2 Corinthians 1 is that the God of all comfort uses his saints to serve the suffering. That's our topic for this morning and the point that I hope you come away with, that the God of comfort uses his saints to serve the suffering. I'd like to offer some simple practical counsel today and give you four points of instruction. As I mentioned, this is not what we would typically do here in terms of an expository sermon from one text. It's going to be somewhat topical and thematic, but it's in times like these as a church that there's an opportunity for instruction, for us to be instructed as to, okay, we just went through this experience as a congregation, but how should we understand our role? What is your role as an individual in times of loss? How does God desire to use us as his saints to serve the suffering? So four points of instruction. And number one is this. We serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God. 
We serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God because God desires to minister to people's emotional needs. Uh, There is an emotional component to who we are as human beings. Comfort falls largely within that realm. And the God of comfort comforts us so that we can comfort others. And we serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God to them. 2 Corinthians 1 here describes God very vividly as the father of mercies and the God of comfort. This is what he is like. This tells us something about the heart of God, the father of mercies, the God of comfort. We talk a lot in this church about the God who is sovereign and he is. We talk about the God who is full of wrath against wickedness, and that's true. We talk a lot about the God who will shatter his enemies. That's all real, and it's going to happen, but the glory of God is not only seen in his power. It's not only seen in his purity. The glory of God is also seen in his love and his compassion. That expresses the glory of God also. In fact, when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning, well, it's not the burning bush, it was later on Mount Sinai, same place, Exodus chapter 34, Moses said, show me your glory. I want to see what you're like. God hid him in the rock and he passed before him. And here's what God said about himself in revealing his glory to Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first words out of his mouth to describe his glory and who he is is to describe his heart of love and compassion. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 42 verse three says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This is the heart of God. We see this tender compassion in the life and ministry of Jesus, fleshed out so many times. He puts his hand on the lepers. He he gently raises this little girl to life, taking her by the hand and saying, little girl, arise. We see that Jesus is patient with doubting Thomas. He's merciful to Peter after he denies Christ. At every step, the glorious Christ who has, as we saw last week, authority over the demons, the one who rebukes Pharisees, he is also able to pivot and show the most tender care to those that he loves. And this compassionate heart of God, it's not limited to just a few passages where there's a few theological statements made. It's not just a feature of a few isolated stories in the life of Christ. It really describes for us the whole story of redemption. Think about that. The God we worship, the God we serve, is a God who in love and compassion goes towards the needy. That's the story of redemption. That explains why Israel exists, why Abraham was called, why the Messiah is born, why Jesus suffers and dies and rises again, and why the good news overflows the banks of Israel to go to all the nations. It's because God is going towards those who have a great need, a need for salvation, a need for rescue, a need for cleansing. That reveals to us the heart of our God. That's the gospel. And listen, God desires for us to reflect his glory, to reflect his heart. 
He calls us in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of him as beloved children. So if that's what our heavenly father is like, there should be something in us that expresses those same things. His will is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And that therefore, part of what that means is that we reflect his heart of love and compassion. And that means that some of us have a lot of growing to do in that area. Because that doesn't always come naturally to us, does it? We have to be instructed. We need the Holy Spirit to help us change. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul exhorts the church to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why? Because that expression of a, of a heart that cares about what someone else is going through, that is reflective of the heart of God. Rather than keep the suffering at arm's length, we need to be willing to enter into their experience with them because this sort of care, this sort of personal expression of a heart of compassion, that reflects the heart of God. And that's part of what we're supposed to do as the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse three, says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Isn't that fascinating? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, their trial is your trial. There's a solidarity with the suffering that should mark those who belong to the church, those who are part of the body of Christ. Even that metaphor of a body indicates how we're all connected together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So there's to be an expression of the heart of God that's shown as care for those are going through difficult times. Your expression of care may be a hug, may be listening on the phone, it may be simply physical presence, just being there. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wanted his friends to come with him. He said, can't you just watch and wait with me for one hour? Because my soul is sorrowful even unto death. The impact that this kind of a ministry of personal care and compassion, the impact that this can have is powerful. Consider that those who are going through difficulty and loss, they may be tempted, they may struggle with wondering whether or not God really loves them. We, do, we have that logic in our brain. As much as scripture tells us to the contrary, we tend to think, if God really loves me, why does this hurt so bad? you can be evidence that God does love them by expressing his heart, reminding them that they are loved and they're not alone. Those who suffer often feel alone. They often feel forgotten. When we enter into trials with them, it guards them against that feeling of isolation, which can be a fertile um, ground for temptation by the enemy, where discouragement happens and despair can creep in. So we can serve the suffering by expressing to them the heart of God. You don't have to understand. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to fix it. But when you show compassion and love in their hour of loss, their hour of difficulty, it reflects the heart of God. And God will use that to minister to their needs. He's the God of all comfort who comforts us and then through us provides comfort 
to any who are in affliction. So we serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God. But number two, a second point of instruction. We serve the suffering by pointing them to the truth of God. You probably all agreed with me on the first point. This one may take a little more convincing because it goes contrary to some common wisdom of the day. But listen, we serve the suffering by pointing them to the truth of God because we're not merely seeking to minister to emotional needs. We also want to minister to spiritual needs. And how will God meet spiritual needs? He will meet it with the truth of his word. Words are powerful things. We know that words can be devastatingly destructive. James chapter three tells us that the tongue is like a a little fire, a little spark that can burn down a whole forest. Some of us know all too well with regret the kind of negative impact our words can have. But our words can also be used to strengthen and to build up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul says, keep it up, keep encouraging each other, keep building up one another, and that requires words. That requires that we speak to those who are facing difficulty. Ephesians 4.29 says that the talk that comes out of our mouths should be only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We serve the suffering by pointing them to the truth of God, by speaking to them words of grace, words that encourage. So how do we use our words to do this? Well, let me give you a few things we should not do. We should not speak to people who are suffering and simply give them empty platitudes. It doesn't help to come up and say, well, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That doesn't help. Well, God must have just wanted another angel in heaven. Some of us have heard that before. Not only is it doctrinally incorrect, but that doesn't actually help anyone. Don't give them empty platitudes. Secondly, don't compare. Oh, you think losing a parent is hard. At least you had parents. You know, my father left when I was young. That sort of comparison that downplays someone's suffering just puts the focus on you. It makes you the topic of conversation, and it's not comforting. It doesn't minister grace to those who hear. I would also warn you and say, don't be glib or dismissive. Oh, sorry to hear about that. Um, But yeah, how about that KU game yesterday? It's kind of nice that they've won a few games for once. That sort of dismissive attitude is, is actually harmful, it's counterproductive. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20 says, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Without going into all the word pictures there, that's negative, okay, it's annoying. Um, that's not helpful. You don't want to sing songs to a heavy heart and be dismissive of their grief, pass over it too glibly. It's Proverbs 25, 20, if you wanna look that reference up. Those are things we should not do in in entering into and speaking to someone who's experiencing loss. But here's how we should use our words. We should use our words to point people to God, to remind them of who God is, to remind them of what God is like. The best use of our words is to be carriers of divine truth. There's nothing better we can use our tongues for. We can point people to the God of grace. 
We can point people to the God of comfort. We can point people to the God of promise. Psalm 119 verse 50, the psalmist writes, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. What better use of our words than to remind people of the promises of God, promises that give comfort, promises that give life. Psalm 119, 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. There is real comfort to be found, not in empty platitudes, not just in changing the subject and trying to cheer them up. There is real comfort to be found in pointing them to the truth of God's word. This is what we need, which means we need to be prepared to speak the truth in love as we seek to minister to those with spiritual needs. And again, this goes contrary to maybe some counsel you've heard. You've heard people say, don't just come in and share a Bible verse with someone who's suffering. I would strongly disagree with that. And I would beg you that if you come to visit me in the hospital, or if you try to encourage me at the graveside, please tell me about God. Please remind me of these promises. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to be reminded of. We need to to be reminded of God's goodness and his love and his trustworthiness and yes, even his sovereignty. We need to be told that God works all things together for good. And we're gentle with that. May not be the first words as we walk into the room, but we have to get there. We have to get to that point at some point in our ministry to those who suffer to remind them of God's truth. I shared this illustration yesterday at the memorial service, and I'm going to use it again, sorry. Um, But a a number of years ago, and some of you guys remember this, our church was smaller at that point, but um, the the home that that we live in was having some serious foundation problems. Uh, The walls on the inside of my basement were shifting in. They'd shifted in so far that some drastic repairs were needed. We had to excavate around the outside of the foundation and, and had to hook up these large hydraulic, um, um, these, these, um, these jacks that could push the walls back out to plumb. And then we could install these, ste- these steel beams, these piers uh, that locked the foundation into place and then backfill everything. And, and now it's not leaking and now it's not shifting anymore. Um, That's such a metaphor for what our life is like. Uh, The seasons in Kansas are really harsh on on houses. The soil contracts and expands. There's a lot of clay uh, underneath the surface. And as water and temperature happens, as life happens, as things change, that can twist a house totally out of whack. That can, it can erode, it can shift, it can swell. And it takes something like a steel beam to hold that in place. Listen, the truth of God's word is like those steel piers that keep the foundations of your life from shifting because life is gonna change. There's gonna be scorching temperatures, Arctic winters. There's gonna be droughts where everything shrivels up. There's gonna be floods where everything gets buried. And if you don't have the rock-solid truth of God's word to ground you, to stabilize you, the structure of your life, your faith itself, is at risk of collapsing. And sometimes when people face difficulty, when they face loss, when they face grief, the foundations start to shake. And they may need our help to climb down into the basement and make sure there's some steel piers in place that will keep things from collapsing. Friends, that's a way that we are called to minister to those in times of loss. 
We serve those who are suffering by pointing them to God's truth. A few qualifiers with that. We do need to be sensitive to timing. Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. You don't want to be a bull in a china shop. There is a sensitivity and a timing to doing this that takes wisdom, it takes prayer, it's a skill that needs to be developed. Yes, Proverbs 15.23 says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good is it? So you need to know what season it is, you need to know what time of day it is, you need to have a sensitivity. Is this the right time to share that doctrinal truth? Is this the right time to, to read this passage of scripture with them? Is this the right time for me to share how, how in my experiences of trials, God used this text to get me through? Uh, we, need, we do need to be sensitive to that. And we also need to be patient with those in crisis because when someone, um, some of you guys have taken lifeguard training, you know that when somebody's drowning, they flail, they they thrash out for anything they can grab onto, and often they end up punching their rescuer in the face in the process. So you need to be prepared that when we enter into these situations, people may not always say everything just right. We need to be slow to rebuke, slow to correct, because they're not going to articulate everything perfectly. They're not going to say everything with complete doctrinal precision. So we need to give people room. We need to give, give them time to work through things. Recognize that God is doing spiritual surgery on them right now. They're lying on the table. They've been cut open. There's maybe some organs laying around. And we need to be very careful and gentle and recognize not everything may be perfectly put together just yet. But when the time is right, there will be a time for us to redirect emotions, to, to redirect certain thoughts towards the truth so that thoughts and emotions, attitudes are brought in line with the truth of Scripture. That is a way that we can serve those who are suffering. We do it with patience, with gentleness and care. So be slow, be patient, but I have to say this, don't be so careful that you never actually get to the point of offering truth. We do need to get there. We need to engage in this crucial ministry of meeting spiritual needs by pointing them to the truth of God's word. That's a way that we can serve the suffering. So we serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God, by pointing them to the truth of God. Third, we can also serve the suffering by being the provision of God. We serve those who suffer by being the provision of God. We want to minister to their emotional needs and their spiritual needs, but guess what? Sometimes there's also physical needs. And God may choose to use you to meet those needs. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a very practical command that all of us should consider, Lord, how do you want me to obey that this week, this month? How can I practically do that? How can I contribute to the needs of the saints? How can I seek to show hospitality, a welcoming spirit that invites people into my world to serve them with anything that I may have at hand? Many of you are familiar with 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That's the definition of love, is sacrifice. 
That's what Jesus Christ did for us. The beloved apostle continues, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As those who have received sacrificial love, that sets the paradigm for how we are to love each other. John continues, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So we do need to speak into people's lives, but we are also to act in a way that physically demonstrates the love and the care and the provision of God. Sometimes what's needed is a meal. Sometimes what's needed is help with car repair. Sometimes they need financial aid. It may be help with the kids, but we as a church should be eager to step in and meet those kinds of needs, whatever they may be. 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul gives instruction to Timothy on, on, on how he should be leading and shepherding those in his church who are, uh, who are wealthy. Actually, it's 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, they are to do good, and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Ready to share. I think all of us would fall into that category of those who have ample resources. We are the wealthy in comparison to most who live in this world. And there should be a readiness in each of us to share. That doesn't mean that everybody always gets to meet every need. Um, we don't need 200 meals, we need four. You know, like not everybody can always do it, but there should be a readiness in each of us not hoping that somebody else does it, not assuming it's somebody else's job, but a readiness to share. Hebrews 13, 16 says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There will be times where your goods, your time, your money, your energy is what God intends to use to meet the needs of someone else in this body. God promises to meet their needs. And a lot of times he'll use us to do it. And we ought to do this with joy, with eagerness, not begrudgingly. Romans 12, 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, uh, that we are to, to use them. He says, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There is a spirit to this provision that should, that should radiate joy that we believe what Jesus said, that it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Listen, God blesses and God empowers this kind of giving. It pleases him. This kind of sacrificial generosity towards those in need is God's will for us. We wanna have a culture of generosity in the church where there's not just a reluctant willingness, but an eagerness. I love how Paul describes the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. He's writing to the believers at Corinth and he's kind of bragging on the believers in Macedonia. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The people at Macedonia didn't give out of their excess. They gave even when they didn't have extra, and they were begging for the favor, the privilege of getting to support the needy saints. Hopefully, you are disappointed when you find out that someone else beat you to the punch and the need is already met. There should be that sort of heart because we understand that God will use us to serve the suffering, that he will use us to be his provision for their needs. So we serve the suffering by expressing the heart of God, by pointing them to the truth of God, being the provision of God. And then lastly, we serve the suffering ultimately out of love for Christ. We serve the suffering out of love for Christ. The danger of preaching a sermon like this is there's a lot of emphasis on what you are supposed to do. Do this, do this, do this. You ought, you ought, you ought. You must, you must, you must. And there's a time and a place to look at the exhortations of Scripture. But we must not lose sight of the fact that all of the things that we are to do is in light of what Christ has already done. We love him because he first loved us. We lay our lives down for our brothers because he laid down his life for us. So, so the bookends of this whole thing is grace. And when you recognize all that Christ has done for us, that we are needy people, that we are broken people, that we are sinful people, that we are spiritually poor, and he, though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. When we consider all of that, that is intended to produce in us love for Christ, gratitude to Christ, joy in the knowledge of all that Christ has provided for us. And this is what motivates us to love and serve other people. And that love and service to them is actually considered love and service to Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 34. It's a little longer passage. You're probably familiar with it. Jesus is speaking about the day of final judgment. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The service, the sacrifice, the ministry that you extend to those who suffer is received by Christ as if you are serving him. Which means that there's a powerful motive here for us. Not just a motive of duty, not just a motive of obligation, not even a logistical motive of, well, 
there's a need and somebody's got to fill it, I may as well. The motive for us in all of this that we're talking about today ought to be love for Christ. Ministry to those in need, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical need, is to be motivated by love for Christ. We do these things out of obedience to the commands of Christ. We do this out of a desire to honor Christ. We show that we love Christ by loving the people that he loves. Jesus said, as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It really matters very little whether or not you know the person in need. It's not about how deep your relationship with them is. The love you have for other people in this body doesn't rest on on the depth of your relationship with them. It rests on the depth of your relationship with Christ. It doesn't depend on your history with them. It depends on your history with Jesus and that he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and went to the cross to pay your debt. And we love him. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. It motivates us, it constrains us, and that it keeps us from some things, and it propels us, it compels us towards other things. Paul says the love of Christ compels us because we have understood this, that Christ died for all, therefore all died. And he died so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died and rose on our behalf. That's the logic of Paul's ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter five. And it ought to be the logic of our ministry as well. That our service of the suffering is motivated by love for Christ. And there is ample fuel to increase your love for Christ. When we consider the gospel, we consider God's goodness to us, there is no shortage of motivation that ought to push us out of our comfort zone, out of our Um, apathy and towards those in need. This is a mark of genuine faith in Christ according to Matthew 25. It is evidence that our heart has been transformed by grace to reflect the heart of our God and God sees that. God notices that. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Did you catch that? It's the love we show for his name in serving the saints. And Hebrews says that God does not overlook that. God sees that. God notices that. He values that. And expressing love for the one who loved us is the ultimate motive for this ministry to the suffering. It moves us to offer ourselves to God as instruments in his hands to be used in whatever way he may see fit as a channel of comfort to those in need. So very simply, I wanna ask you, how will you participate in this ministry? How are you going to be involved in serving those who suffer, those who face loss, to those who have emotional and spiritual and physical needs? I think sometimes people are just a bit oblivious to what's going on in the lives of people around them. Sometimes we just don't notice until something happens to us and then we notice. 
But listen, God has called us to be a body that cares for every member. Other people may see the needs, but maybe you assume someone else will step up to the plate. Someone else is better suited to provide for their needs. Someone else is going to be better at giving them comfort. Someone else would probably be better at giving encouragement from God's word. But listen, God desires that you reflect his heart, that you offer yourself to be used by him, that you instinctively move towards those in need, eager to participate. Maybe you're the kind of person who sees the needs and and you see it happening and you want to help, but you just don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. And so you tend to hang back, sort of get the paralysis by analysis. Like, I don't know exactly how to do this perfectly, so I'm not going to do it at all. Let me encourage you, God wants you to step out in faith. He wants you to pray for wisdom. He wants you to trust that he can use you even if you're not perfect and your ministry isn't perfect, that God can use that anyway. Guess what? Nobody's ministry is perfect except for Jesus. God uses imperfect preachers, imperfect counselors, imperfect comforters. He just does, and you can be part of that. We want to be a church that is eager and ready to serve, a church that is grounded in the truth of God's word, that speaks the truth to one another, a church that expresses care and compassion, the care and compassion of God to one another, a church that is ready, a church that has a default posture of love and care towards those who suffer loss or trials, a church that is like those Minutemen in the war for independence, that were ready at a moment's notice to jump into action We want to be a church that takes opportunity, every opportunity we can, to do real tangible good to those who are loved by God but are suffering loss. So let's pray that God opens our eyes to see the ways in which he wants to use us. And my prayer for our church is that we would have both hearts and hands that are open, ready and willing to offer ourselves as instruments of grace to be used by God. The God of comfort uses his saints to serve the suffering. May he continue to do so here as we reflect his heart, speak his truth, and deploy his provision so that Christ is honored in our midst. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the many people who have ministered to me and my family over the course of our lives. We've experienced what it's like to be on that end of it. We see how necessary and precious that can be. Lord, I thank you for the many people in this church who have stepped up, even this last week, to serve, to provide, to express care. Lord, I ask that you would only increase that element within our body. That more and more people would grow in their capacity for this kind of ministry. I pray that if there's any here whose hearts are somewhat indifferent to the needs of others, that you would soften them. If there's any that are assuming it's somebody else's job, I pray that you would help them to recognize the part that you desire for them to play in this whole process. Lord, I pray for those who feel uncertain and and a bit insecure, not knowing what to do, wanting to help, but, but, but feeling just unsure of themselves. I pray that you would strengthen their faith and that you would just grant them wisdom to perceive how they can play a part. Lord, I also pray for another group. There's always a few of us that feel like it all depends on us, that if we don't do it, nobody's going to, and we can feel very overwhelmed. 
Some of us have a lot in common with Martha, who is busy which, with, very busy with much serving and can be a bit frantic at times. I pray that you would increase our faith to trust that you use many different parts of the body and that none of us can really be the full answer to meet anyone's need. So I pray that we would all embrace our part and trust that you will use the church, you will use the body to build itself up in love. Lord, we pray for those who may be experiencing suffering and need and perhaps a sermon like this is frustrating because they're thinking of all the ways that they wish they were being loved by people. I pray that rather than focus on their disappointment in others, I pray that today they would lift their eyes to you, that they would be satisfied and content to know the God of all comfort who is able to directly comfort us. I pray that we would experience your comfort through your spirit and that as we receive that, we would be more focused on what kind of comfort we can give rather than what comfort we can get. Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love. Be our refuge and our strength and our rock. We pray that you would continue to strengthen this church, that you would meet our needs. We look to you with open hands and open hearts. Amen.